Welcome back to the Twin Geekcast 135. It's it's hard when you do them out of order because I've done next week's show. And I'm pretty sure this, yeah, 135 will be this the Twin Geekcast. By the way, I, I regret to inform you that I haven't listened to what I'm sure is your wonderful discussion on Norm MacDonald's Legacy with Pavlos because my podcaster app refuses to update our oh, no. show. It's, and it's just our show. Every other <laughs> podcast I listen to, including our, our Ranking the Monsters and the Daydream cast, updates just fine on a weekly basis, bi-weekly basis. It's perfectly in sync. But for some reason, ours is still stuck on Rafifi, which is even older. Like, it, it wouldn't even update with the Playtime episode. It's probably good that you haven't heard my impression of you at the end. Uh, <laughs> that's why you've returned, because you haven't I'm, heard it. I've I've heard about this, but I I literally have no frame of reference for it at the moment. So you're, you, I guess you're very fortunate. This might be the last Twin Geeks cast. Yeah, uh, if if you depending. don't show up for the next two weeks, everyone should just assume you've quit the show, right? Yeah, that that is a uh, safe assumption. I think if I'm not here for for two weeks, it's most certainly because. I have found out that Calvin has done a horrifically offensive impression of me, and I have cut off all ties with the website and uh, all of the people associated with it. It would be, yeah, it'd be a real shame. Uh, so if David doesn't show up next week, but certainly the week after that, just know that yeah, he's gone. Next week, good. if I'm not here next week, it's Don't okay. Don't worry too much, because you know? I've recorded next week's. That's, yeah, you know, yeah, that, that's we, we, already, we already knew that. Calvin already messaged me about that betrayal. But if if the one after that, I'm not here then then you should worry you should worry a little more um uh, there are new movies there's starting to be new movies i haven't seen any new movies i've been watching hockey um uh, did yeah. <laughs> watch any new movies to bring us this week uh no i've i've been too busy to even watch old movies really like i yeah. kind of snuck this one in there um uh, although i did go out to the theater last night and you saw um Steamboat Bill Jr. or I did. Steamboat Bill is that what it's called? Ste- Steamboat Bill Jr. Okay. He's he's the junior. There's a Steamboat Bill Senior in the film as well, but it's it's about the junior. Yeah, as yeah. There are. yeah. I uh, I the Hollywood, of course, the famous uh, theater that we talked about two weeks ago in all its glory, uh, brought back their pipe organ pictures unexpectedly. It was it was very recently that I saw this pop up on their website, and I was like, I have go, I've got to go back. Uh, especially for a Buster Keaton film, even though it's a Buster Keaton film that I'm, not, I wasn't as enthusiastic about. Where were you um, at before? We need to set the stage of your uh, previous opinion because I don't remember. So, so I, I, Steamboat Bill Jr. was the first Buster Keaton film I saw, mm-hmm. and uh, I was, I was pretty mild on it. Like the first hour is a lot of like kind of mild humor with like a father son dynamic thing that's not like super great you know but then then in like the final 10 15 minutes or so you get the big hurricane set piece and that's where the famous uh image of the building falling down around buster keaton is you get these great scenes where he's like stuck in a hospital bed like being thrown about the town by the wind you get a great bit where he's like trying to move and and, like run against the wind he's just stuck in place it's all really great. It's some of the best stuff Keaton ever did, but it's it's just in that last 10 minutes there. So after I watched everything else of Buster Keaton's, uh, you know, and I fell in love with everything he did, I was like, all right, all right, let me go back and rewatch this first one and see if maybe I just didn't appreciate his craft entirely yet. And I've got more grip on who he is as a performer, what his style of comedy is like, et cetera, et cetera. 
And nope, I had the exact same opinion. Exact same opinion the second time. I'm like, well, this was equally as underwhelming except for the last 10 minutes. Uh, so I, I guess that's just my, you know, feeling on the matter here. And so Would you last say night, it's the score that, that made the difference for you this time? No, no, I don't think it was. I mean, obviously it helped, certainly, but I think it was just like the the experience and seeing it in that kind of setting and with a, a group of people, you could gauge like some of the comedy a bit differently. And I think the you know, the the isolation helped to uh, cater to the smaller jokes throughout because that's what really resonated. I found this time it wasn't even like the, the big set pieces at the end. They weren't even the most hilarious parts for anyone in the movie. They were all, you know, re really good. Like a lot of people clapped when you know, you came to the building stunt, but it, it didn't elicit as much laughter as like earlier moments did. Like there's there's a bit where he's uh, his dad's making him try on a bunch of different hats to try and find like the manliest or most appropriate one. And Keaton's just doing these like small adjustments throughout it. And and it's the most and it's the funniest thing because it, and it's these small aspects of his, you know, uh, physicality in, in just the, the adjustment of a hat. That's really perfect and really great. And it was moments like that that stood out throughout the first half. And even like the father son dynamic, I found more in you know worth investing in this this time around for some reason. I don't know. I was just way more involved in the film throughout the first half uh, than I and I had been on the previous two tries. Having an audience can help, but I think seeing a movie in the theaters brings out what really is like cinematic acting, which is like the nuance of a tiny detail is really on stage. You're like overexpressing and you're dancing and you're throwing yourself around the screen, but on a movie screen, the most subdued motion is, you know, can be the best acting. It can tell you everything about a character. Yeah, it's it's what really ends up uh, standing out even more, especially on the, the bigger canvas. And again, that's not to say that you can't get that from the smaller screen, because you certainly can, but like with everything else, it just it amplifies it, it feels like. And, you know, it was just, it felt like I had been missing out on what was special about it the whole time. And, and like anything else, again, it's uh, one of those cases where because it's a movie that was made where, where only, you know, cinema screens existed, that was the only format that you could see it in, uh, you know, it felt like the right experience in, in a lot of ways. And that's that's always what these uh, pipe organ pictures have kind of been about, is about showcasing these silent films as they were meant to be seen in 1926 when the film came out, you know. Uh, and, and just getting a different experience and seeing that. And again, with a crowd of people as well, that's always exciting to do. So I was I was really happy to swoop in and see this and have my mind totally changed on on the film. On a film, again, that I that I liked, but was like way less enthusiastic about versus a lot of other Keaton pictures. Uh, but now this one is, is up there way more so, even more than like, say, The General. Although they are showing that in... November, so maybe bookmark your calendars for that, Calvin. Because I might have to get you down here for that. That sounds pretty good to me. Um, there's a, I, I guess I have less of a revelatory change because I went to a repertory theater and saw Rushmore with uh, Samantha and Bond, friends of the site, um, and we just sat on like a lounge couch, and it was, uh, <laughs> it was you know, kind of like sitting in a living room with the largest screen. There were only two other people in that movie oh, theater weird. with us. So um, Central Cinema, they do these runs. They have like, you know, four nights of Rushmore and uh, four nights of like Star Wars or Rocky Horror. There really are like repertory Rocky Horror picture house, which is just like a casual dining uh, experience with a bunch of like couch, like uh, seating areas. And they like dump like real butter, like into the bottom of a bowl and then 
throw the popcorn on. It's the best fucking popcorn. Um, I don't think I got as much like out of like the movie that I didn't already get. Rushmore is already like a great example of like the ridiculousness of a high school drama department and how hilarious those could be. So uh, I I mean we we both like Rushmore. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I I I tend to like just overlook your maligning of the the best Wes Anderson film no, here on this podcast. No. Yeah, no, so this no. is like before he got too symmetrical. No, no, I, like, no. This is like the early <laughs> stuff is the good stuff. I know. I, I mean, there's there's lots of good stuff afterwards. Certainly, again, some of the best stuff, even yeah, one would say. But Rush, Rushmore, and... Rushmore is definitely up there. I think in terms of his great films, I would say it's the best of his early films. Uh, I I have no no scruples for uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, Royal Tenenbaums, a uh, good family picture, uh, as they as they say, a very <laughs> dysfunctional yeah. family. So was was it a good experience in the cinema? Uh, it's it's nice to go back with people as well. Yeah. I think as we kind of expressed in our playtime episode, it's uh, get, getting a group together and experiencing it collectively, and then I I, I like having the discussion afterwards. It feels like because uh, at home, at least uh, on the couch here, uh, we tend to just stop the movie sometimes and talk about things or like, you know, or, or talk between scenes or whatever. Uh, I, I just like the act of engagement of that, but the like, like bottling it all up and then like kind of exploding into conversation afterwards is always a kind of like nice, exciting part of, of the cinema going experience. Well, the other two people were kind of on a date and they just seemed pretty casual. So we, we so, sort of chatted enough like during the movie too. And it was just a, a very casual, relaxed watch. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, they're sick. That they had an intermission three fourths through the movie. What? I, yeah, like like an intentional one, or did like something break down? No, an intentional one. Uh, I don't remember there being an intermission in Rushmore. There's not. So I, I it was in a weird place too, uh, kind of right before it like gets into a uh, important shift in the in the movie's tone. I don't. Um, I don't like that. I don't like. I think they someone... always do it at this theater, from what I remember. I haven't That's... been here for four or five years. So. Mm-hmm. I'm. I'm putting a hard disagree on that one there. So That's... you're anti, um, unintentional intermissions. Yeah. Don't. Right? Don't. Don't force you know intermissions into the the work of people who didn't intend it. There. They're giving too much power to the projectionist here. It's all going to their head. See, but I think it's such a casual cinema. Like I, like I say, it's like Rocky Horror and The Room are probably its main usages. So, I mean, it's that kind of theater where those are like the primary uh, context to use. It's also um, weird for like, wait, isn't Rushmore like a 90 minute film? Well, that's the thing. It really didn't require any kind of intermission or break for me. I mean, it's such a short, you know. This this kind of ties back in actually to the to the pipe organ experience I had because the last film I saw for the pipe organ experience was the one right before the pandemic, which was a ninety minute film with an intentional intermission in it, and it was really weird. Like I was I was absolutely not expecting it, and so I, I like I got up from my seat for like five minutes. I'm like, is this what I'm supposed to do? I don't know why there's an intermission in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable when it's not meant to be there. Uh... Yeah, when you, like you're you're kind of forced to stop when you're not ready to. Like, yeah, I mean, like right before the ending is pretty bad too. Right before like the last arc of the film is a bad place to stop. Yeah. Did you do anything during intermission? Did you guys? No, we just pop- sat and chat. We got more popcorn. That's weird. 
Yeah. <laughs> that must be it. It must be for them to like come and like service the tables and try to get oh. more food orders. I, I guess so. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, especially if you think of it from that perspective. They're like, oh, we got to get some more orders. And if we stop the film and make people <laughs> yeah. sit around and we Maybe just order more. present people. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense from like a business standpoint. It's like it's like throwing an ad break in the middle of, a, you know, your, your movie essentially there. <laughs> right. Yeah, that must be it. I'm fine with it then because I know they need to make some money off of having five of us there for this movie. Yeah, right? yeah, I guess. I don't know. It didn't I, kill the movie. Rushmore was better than I thought it was. That's good. I might, if, if I was them, then I would try and cater to even more like weird, wacky kind of experiences, you know, like like more cult culty stuff, like even more yeah. so down the Rocky Horror Rabbit Hole. Throw in some William Castle films and shit. Yeah, it might not be like that kind of like horror theater. It, uh, it's just like the typical cultish stuff that you'd usually see, uh, mm-hmm. which is a shame because it's really the only repertory theater we have that's open currently. Uh, so uh, Sif and others are coming back today, tomorrow. Hey, uh, I think good. they start in October. So uh, very excited to get back to real theaters, like uh, um, the Grand Illusion and, and Sif especially. You'll have to let me know. I got I got to do a dip up there sometime if they're yeah. showing anything good, I guess. Yeah. Um, there's like, there's a bunch of new movies coming the next month. Uh, oh, only... no, no kidding. <laughs> I know. There's like... Uh, I made a list there somewhere. Uh, should I pull that up? Sure, sure. Were, I looked through the list I'll, and I spent the whole see. year thinking there's just nothing available. Everyone was waiting for October to, to release everything, which is very inconvenient for us <laughs> because this is when we horror marathon. Right, yeah. <laughs> and then I have uh, over 10 movies to see. Okay, I'll just r- run right through it. Okay, uh-huh. today uh, Titan comes out. Then we have Newark, Lamb, Bond, Velvet Underground, The Last Duel, Halloween, Dune, French Dispatch, Last Night in Soho, and Antlers. Um, that's that's more than enough for one month that I'm already doing horror and two festivals in. How'd you miss the most important one? What's that? Jackass 4. It's not coming this month anymore. It's not? It got moved? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Well, there goes my October. <laughs> I've never seen you so disappointed physically and verbally. <laughs> I've never seen you actually have to uh, throw something down on the desk. You, I know gotta, you have gotta all cancel, your... cancel the whole month. I'm definitely not coming back now. There's like 20 movies coming out, and this kid, this pushback of Jackass, just it was the last straw. It's too much. It's too much. <laughs> well, if you don't come back in two weeks, we know Jackass might, might have been part of the reason too. Um, yeah, there will be a lot we could assume then. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's going to be new Wes Anderson too. So I thought it was a uh, uh, we saw that bottle rocket before. It's nice that they play like short films that are tangential to what you're seeing at the theater. I like theaters that do that. Um, oh, oh, they played the short of yeah, bottle yeah. rocket. I thought I you were talking about the feature. bottle rocket, which is the only like, one I haven't seen. You you mean the feature one or the short one now? The feature one. <laughs> the feature one. It's it's an interesting like you know perspective of Wes Anderson's craft starting out very kind of rough around the edges the comedy style is there the of course the the filmmaking is still a little rudimentary he's still kind of mm-hmm. finding his footing there uh the the writing is uh, pretty weak but lots of Wes Anderson tropes are already present in the first film there so i think it's interesting for that perspective as a film though it's not like all that compelling it's not superb or or I don't know. I probably wouldn't watch it again, but 
maybe if I was doing a Wes Anderson marathon, but like only out of obligation, really. Mm -hmm. Well, there was uh, one new movie I saw. Should we go over that or you want to do? Dogs? Yeah, uh, no, because uh, yeah, let's, let's hear a new movie. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Eyes of Tammy Faye, who was oh, um, yes. the TV televangelist. Uh, not something I really had ever contacted. Um, I've never been like a Jesus on TV guy. Uh, like find the find your faith on the on the television ad programs. That was never you know uh, something that would interest me. <laughs> um, I could, yeah. it couldn't be further from my interest. Calvin's always been more of a radio evangelist. Yeah, absolutely. Turn turn um, on that 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 Christian rock and hear some five a.m. sermons. Sometimes you like drive up to the churches. They have you like put on the radio, and I think that's what everyone does during these COVID times. They you have to drive up to the church, put on a radio <laughs> station, then sit in your car and watch them. So it's like a it's like a drive-in theater, but with church. Yeah, <laughs> but you can't see anything from your car, and you just listen to it on your radio. I, uh, it, it's it's a it's a bring your own wine and bread situation. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, one was right by uh, a coffee shop, so I got a coffee and like a biscuit, and I I like sat there and listened to their sermon, and then I just like drove off uh, with the sermon going, and I was like, why do they even come? Man, this this Jesus blood is really caffeinated today. <laughs> I was like, but why don't why don't you just stay home? You have the radio station there, and you can't see anything in your car. They're like way up on a on a stage in like a um a Goodwill parking lot or some shit. <laughs> like, what's the point of that? Uh, well, well you, you have to be there for it otherwise it doesn't count in the eyes of god you know you gotta physically be like there's a there's a distance to to the communion that you have to be there for otherwise uh you, you're looked down upon i guess that's that's the rules it says so in the bible so i uh, i really don't know anything about tammy faye i think laura would be our expert both being uh, a north carolina gal and someone who's, of course, had to contact that culture a lot through that uh, lived experience of that area and family. And uh, she's going to review it. Her family's got a little of the COVID thing. So uh, hoping she still gets her review in and is feeling better. But um, if not, uh, my, my short take, uh, I wasn't as uh, as in on it. I think that um, I think that it's fine. It's like a craft movie. It probably could win like some basic awards for, you know, like costuming and uh costume makeup that kind of thing uh not not really a big interest of mine when that's like the the high point of the movie it's good to see jessica chastain really leading a movie uh, i think we've been waiting to see that for a while again um since like the tree of life interstellar phase uh and the zero was it zero dark 30 was that the one she was in uh since that phase of her career yeah yeah i'm i'm not like a terribly huge uh jessica chastain fan i think she's been you know, it, it, it's really like movie dependent. Yeah, uh, I agree. So, but yeah, always good to see her kind of like rise up the ranks here from, you know, notable supporting roles to leading a film now. Uh, yeah, I don't know about, uh, I'm, I'm looking over the, the film now, kind of pictures <laughs> and trailers and stuff, because I've been very like off off the radar for this. Yeah. Uh, I see Andrew Garfield's in it too. I'm yeah, he plays uh, Jim Baker, who's her husband, who experiences. Uh, she gets to experience homosexuality through like his proclivities as he as he kind of develops away from her, and um, uh, it's all about like the church, like getting money through the televangelism and then putting it into their house and how they're 
Uh, uh, for me, she's a little too defined by his sexuality and the uh, ideas given to her by God. Like she has no actual agency as a character that I find appealing. But uh, mm -hmm. that's me. I see that. I, I know the most notable thing for me has been the poster. I don't know why, yeah. but the poster has always really stuck out to me. She she almost looks like Faye Dunaway on the poster. She does, yeah. Which which I'm kind of like, ooh, you know, I, I like Faye Dunaway, but like, there's that's literally like a very tenuous connection <laughs> that, I, that I'm making an assumption because she's covering half of her face. So yeah. I don't know. I think it's just like the the 70s look of it because Faye Dunaway is such a 70s icon. And the old like permed looking hair and the yeah the yeah uh i i mean i like it because it's like called the eyes of tammy faye but she's covering up her face that's you know that's cleverness <laughs> i think i think that's way. the other reason why that's why i keep thinking of faye dunaway because the name reminds me of the eyes of laura mars <laughs> oh that makes that's, sense there, that, we go. there we go that makes more sense though okay yeah i i could see that i could see the resemblance maybe there's a, a tammy faye faye dunaway thing they're going to uh Oh my god, it's just so much subliminal sublimin subliminal like like aspects just kind of like shooting into my brain that made me think that I guess. Yeah, I could see a, a, a number of reasons you might think that. Um not not for me. Uh uh Michael uh Showalter, uh would you you'll know is the director of Big Sick. We did a Big Sick podcast, I believe. That we did. We did do that. That that was the thing that happened. And Lovebirds, which was a comedy that only I liked and nobody else responded to on Netflix. Um, and, you know, I think he's better at those uh, less refined comedies where the setup's small and the payoff's easy. Uh, uh, I think that's I think that might be a better lane for him than like this uh, biopic. Do you, uh, do you think if, if Kumail Nanjiani was also in this one, you would have liked it? Because that seems to be the, the more connecting thread there. If he played Tammy Faye, I, I'd give it at least a nine. <laughs> I like him so much more than Jessica Chastain. So, I, yep, I'm I'm in a consensus with you there. I mean, yeah, I mean, if he were uh, Tammy Faye, I'd yeah, absolutely. Can we greenlight a different film in which he plays a fallen televangelist? <laughs> I hope so. I, I hope that can happen. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it, especially. I think it's fine. I think it'll get Oscars play anyway, just because it is like a a transformative performance, and B one that has like a lot of uh, you know, moviness so, to it, a lot of set dressing, a lot of characters, a lot of uh, so, so so predictions for next year Oscars are best actress and uh, costuming and makeup. You think it's gonna get nominated for anything else? No, no <laughs> I don't see any it. reason. I'm waiting okay. for Andrew Garfield to do a little more, but I, he keeps not doing more. So. I mean, he like what he had is like a, a shot with like social network. And then yeah. there was a big leading role with under the silver Lake that got totally botched in its release. So nobody God, that, saw it. That movie sucked anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The more I think about it, the more that movies really sucked. But <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was like, a, it's one of those things I watched and David Robert Mitchell, I thought was, so good with it follows which is a movie i've thought about like non-stop where i i'm into like audio visually horror being led by music that's like my number one interest in horror so i love it follows and i i think i wanted to commit more to under the silver lake than i actually liked it yeah i didn't see it so i have no opinion no need yeah. <laughs> no need at all the killers are eating the flesh 
the people they murdered. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Probably be a lot more of them as soon as they find out about us. Coming to get you, Barbara. Mm -hmm. I assume this is where you put some music or zombie sounds or. Brain. There are no brains in this movie, by the way. That's Return of the Living Dead. No, that not very not very smart. These folks. Return of the Living Dead was the one that codified the zombies eating brains thing, whereas this one codified pretty much everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Night, Night of the Living Dead. Um, this is a pretty phenomenal movie that we're talking about this week, yeah? I think it's like the defining zombie movie. You can't even have a discussion about zombie movies without having this as like your fixture of like an American reference point. Um, I, I don't know how how much, like, like how... I, I can't overstate this here. This film literally created an entire breed of mythological creature that we now like hold in high rate like that that to me is like one of the most like mind-blowing things I'm, I'm telling you like like think of another creature that is as prolific in popular culture as, as zombies are that have been created in the last half decade yeah nothing nothing there's close. there's literally nothing compared like i i could and, and you could argue that for even further extenuation of like pop culture like in terms of films that have like out permeated you know the cultural you know membrane maybe like wizard of oz is the only thing that could top it because this is like like again everybody knows what the, this idea of a zombie is and the concept of a zombie as is presented in our modern day you know lexicon here uh did not exist before 1968 the the word did and the loose association with dead people coming back to life did but very much so in a very different tradition, more, you know, uh, located in the ideas of uh, Haitian folklores and such. You know, that's where you get films like White Zombie and I Walked with a Zombie, you know, the, the latter being a Val Luton film and the former a uh, Bela Lugosi movie, which is essentially just Dracula again, you know, yeah. but now he has furry eyebrows. And this is kind of combining <laughs> like those Haitian folklores with like a I Am Legend. It's just can, taking can you repeat concept. that, Cal? It's just uh, combining the folklore with like an I am legend. Like it's it's looking into what uh, Matheson made in that novel and creating uh, from the vampire, taking like those elements and making the zombies cannibalistic, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that was one of the things in this. So this is where it ties in with the documentary here because uh, a long time ago, I, I wrote a piece on Night of the Living Dead, which you can go view on our website, thetwingeeks.com. Uh, it was one of the first pieces that I, I, I wrote in earnest, and it was a lot of research that went into it and in talking about Night of Living Dead's legacy for its 50th anniversary back in 2018. And uh, one of the things I, I researched heavily with was a really great documentary called uh, Birth of the Living Dead, 
which uh, features Romero and a lot of former cast members and involvers in the whole legacy of starting with Night and going all the way up through like his last zombie film, which is like Diary of the Dead or something. They didn't spend too much time on that. Way more on the first half. But uh, yeah, the the inspiration coming from Richard Matheson's uh, I Am Legend is is really kind of like the key point in terms of Romero setting out to make this is that and that his interest was less in the aftermath of the you know, kind of apocalypse where, you know, there's only one man left, as in the case with I Am Legend versus at the very beginning is the idea. And with a couple of tweaks to the concept of the vampires presented in Matheson's novel, you know, he got the more modern iteration of the zombies here, uh, taking inspiration from other elements as well, you know, obviously. Which really gets us to my absolute favorite thing about Night of the Living Dead, which is the normalcy of the zombies. I think they are scary because they're so much closer to us. They walk like people like um, they may seem a little encumbered. They're not very fast, but uh, their presence looks the same as us. It could be any of us. Like there's no when I look at like a rotted head and like a corpse like crawling out of the ground. I'm kind of like, yeah, but that, that, you know, that doesn't look like my family. That's not that that scary. That looks like a. A comic book figure but then when i look at these guys and i'm like oh fuck like those those just look like any guy on the street just uh, uh they're just cannibalistic and they, they have like these urgencies and you can believe like uh someone could feel that way in like yeah. a psychotic break or something there, that's definitely what makes i think night living dead so much more horrifying than perhaps most any other horror film even is that there is a very real element. It's very grounded in, in its horror, even though this idea, this concept is otherworldly uh, almost, you know, it has this foundation in a very human portrayal uh, throughout all elements, but particularly in the zombies. Again, you know, these, these ideas of what we have now as these half undead creatures, you know, basically like walking skeletons almost who just, you know, feast on people mindlessly. Uh, they don't feel as real as the people in Night of the Living Dead who have very, you know, they have minimal makeup on. They they still have very, you know, individual expressions of character. And it's something you see develop in Romero's later films. Uh, I think, again, something like uh, Dawn of the Dead is a, is a really great example. The, the mall set one where you have all these different, like, very kooky kind of zombies walking around. There's like a, a Hare Krishna zombie that everyone kind of remembers in that one. And it's funny on the surface, but at the same time, what's so brilliant about that is that it gives them these distinctive personalities. Each of them, they all have the, you, you can get a sense of a person existing prior to this creature here, you know, as opposed to just this mass of faceless, you know, flesh eaters. Uh, and that's definitely the case as well, going into Night of the Living Dead. And, uh, you know, all, all these creatures feel like real people afflicted here. And it's more of a tragedy even than for the victims in the film. Like you feel just as much empathy for the people who are attacking, you know, our, our heroes in the house as you do for them who are being assaulted. Yeah. The Zambies are just as, uh, just as, uh, victimized as the people. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, again, that's kind of like reinforced by the, the ending as well, which I'm sure we'll get into more. Whereas they're, you know, the two were conflated essentially they're treated the same, by the by the posse coming through is that they're you know both uh killed in in the same manner the same heartless manner uh and yeah so so there's great moments throughout night living dead where various zombies various care you know you know nameless characters of the zombies there are given these moments you know where where you could just see 
get a chance to see them doing something very odd, very individual. Like yeah. there's the one zombie who who stops to eat a bug off of a tree. Yeah, that's which. Great. Which, again, is, you know, like you can look at it as a little silly, perhaps, and maybe even incongruous with how we, you know, look at zombies. Like, why is it eating a bug instead of going for, for human flesh as they supposedly crave? But it gives it this individual moment and it feels more, you know, u- unique as a characteristic for this zombie. It doesn't feel like just another, m- you know, member of the mass. It, it feels like its own individual person. And again, and this under underlines the tragedy that is inherent to the uh, infections going on. I'd say like a lot of it just feels so interesting in a contemporary way too, because it's about like a, a group of people and how they will and will not band together in the face of a tragedy, which is a hard watch I, right now. <laughs> uh, not, not, not just a tragedy, but a, a an unstoppable, invisible force of infection, you know? Oh, yeah, there's there's definitely nothing that parallels with our modern, you know, date perils. <laughs> yeah, you, parallels. You could uh, hardly find the confluence there. Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, I guess what's so grounded about it and what always interests me is like the the camera as a tool of reportage, like a George Romero was like working on like the sets of like North by Northwest and shit and was like unhappy with how these movies were being made. And he went and like sat in with like newsrooms and uh, used some of their techniques and brought them to the screen. So uh, a lot of it comes from like the pages of journalism. But when like journalism is in the movie, when the news media is in the movie, uh, it's not like so trumped up like it is in other movies. Like it's it's you know, honest reporting, like, uh, and I think the, the camera follows that same tag. Like it has like I, a, a journalist eye. I, I suppose the, the, the bluntness and the straightforwardness and the, uh, you know, forthright reporting is one of the least accurate elements. It feels like through our modern <laughs> lens, perhaps yeah. the, the, the straight telling of the, the truth to the people during the midst of a crisis. It's what you want the news to be, but not how the news is. Yeah. But but perhaps in 1968, it was is more realistic. No, um, I do think that's one of the strongest elements, but also one that seems to elicit more critique from people when they view this film is that because they are, uh, you know, the the, the news segments are lengthy ex- exposition dumps, effectively, and they yeah. tell you about all of the zombies and what's going on with that and how they function and stuff, but. The way in which these exposition dumps are incorporated is very smart and it's very naturalistic into the film. And again, it helps ground things further. It, you know, it, if anything, it only reinforces the realism of the situation. Uh, and there, there are great moments in which they don't. There's one moment where everything stops and we're just given this exposition straight on, and that's through the television sequence. But again, it's it's integrated very well and very naturally because this is a moment where characters would stop and try and learn about the information here through the television they can hook up to. And again, it's, it's reinforced further by the fact that they hired a real Philadelphia, uh, or I think it's Pittsburgh, sorry, a Pittsburgh newscaster to relay this information as he would, you know, normally and so he's reading off these ridiculous ideas about you know the you know people rising from the dead and eating flesh and stuff in a very candid and straightforward manner as you would any other newscast but there's earlier moments as well through the the radio that they implement you know uh this information dump while 
not stopping, you know, the story or development of things. There's the sequence where Dwayne Jones' character is boarding up the house. He's ripping apart, you know, the table and such while all this expedition is going on in the background. Again, very seamlessly like you would see, you know, in, in a real life situation where he's being productive while, you know, obtaining all his information as he can. Mm-hmm. I think we talk about next week also on the Friday the 13th part two podcast where uh, the parts that are sometimes charming and best about horror are the moments sitting between the action that's it's uh, between the ghoulishness and uh, it's what characters do and how they survive in a, in a setting might be just as interesting as uh, watching them get their heads torn apart. Is this, is this the best home invasion horror film? It might be. Yeah. Uh, it's, sure. it, I can it's agree. not, it's, it's not, a home invasion film and like what you typically expect but absolutely is in terms of all of its conventions and and such it's just that the the invading force is more supernatural than your 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 typical genre it's funny to think like even video games especially never like matured past the night of the living dead like it's still nazi zombies like that's still the the prime like you know video games still are at this place where i've been reliving night of the living dead for you know an eternity now. Mm-hmm. Oh, again, it, it's it's really just crazy. I can't state enough times how immensely influential the film was, and and it wouldn't have been if the production hadn't have fucked up in one very important way. How's that? I don't know about the production fuck up where I forgot. So, in case you don't know, Night of the Living Dead is uh, a film in the public domain, and it was made public domain immediately upon its release. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's because at the time in in, uh, how American copyright worked was that uh, for a film, you needed the symbol, the, you know, the statement of uh, uh, ownership uh, on the title card when the film was released. And uh, they didn't do that. They they messed up. They put the wrong one in place. So when they released it, it instantly became public domain, Uh, which seems like a really crazy way to try and implement that. But that's how it worked. And so there's a number of films that have fallen into public domain that that way. But it's really important for the legacy of Night of the Living Dead because the the film would not have been as ubiquitous uh, and and so widespread if it had not been fallen into the hands of people who could show it on television or show it in theaters, you know, without any issues like that. And even more so for people who could then take the concept that Romero put in his films, these ideas of the zombies, and imitate them freely because yeah. there's no copyright on them. So the the idea of the zombie would not be as widespread in our popular culture if Romero had uh, been able to capitalize off of the profits of his first film here. It's a shame monetarily and, you know, as the rights of the artist that he lost that, but his legacy ha- was secured because of this one, you know, slip up that they made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, one simple mistake they don't tell you you need to make when you're making a film. Don't copyright your work. Yeah, I, I believe they had the, the right title for which to copyright it, but they just put in the wrong one when they were making the final <laughs> oh, wow. edit. Uh, if I if I'm remembering that correctly, but again, it's 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 the best mistake he could have ever made. Yeah, um, it feels like you would admit that like more of this movie's success was accidental than it really was. Um, I I feel like he says like he never really thought about like casting Dwayne. He was just like I just had to replace the the script how it was, but. I think you have to look at like what would have been revolutionary just about doing the casting in that year, in that time, uh, doing this story. In in the documentary in Birth of the Living Dead, he's 
very, very like he tries to be very humble about the yeah. idea there. He he comes across as very modest about, oh, I didn't mean, you know, to make a statement with this at the end. And <laughs> that's what I'm saying. You you and, like and I, no. I believe him up to a certain point. I believe that he wrote the script that as as he states, kind of like just very innocuously with a with a you know, any old Joe in the role, you know, more like a regular old white man. I believe it was a trucker part initially was the idea is that he was supposed to be more gruff you know, uh, as a character, Ben was. And then when Dwayne Jones stepped in, uh, you know, he worked with Romero to cater the character more to his more, like, gentle uh, sensibilities. He was mm -hmm. he was much more, like, scholarly as a person. You know, he was, he was an, uh, 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 you know, more art-oriented uh, individual. Uh, and, and so you get a little bit of both in Ben's ultimate characterization there in the film. Uh, he's still very, you know, like, 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 gruff but you know he doesn't come across as like a, a hick like the part would originally kind of called for it, but i mean Dwayne jones is really good in it too i mean he has a good character i mean he's, he I mean, it means something though is what i'm trying to say like it yeah means something to put a black character here you well and also you can't look at the end of the film and what they do with the footage and the the photographs at the end with the hooks and everything and say you did not you know, unintentionally draw on the the images <laughs> of like like you know uh, lynchings and such in in your depiction of this climax here. You did not accidentally come across that Romero. Come on, you you knew what you had, and you did at least a little bit here. Now, uh, y y there is certain argument that a lot of it could be unconscious. You know, in unconsciously informed. It was made in 1968. You know, mm -hmm. this was the height of the civil rights movement. Uh, there was a lot of uh, unrest going on in the air uh, when they had the work print that they were bringing. You know, to to the edit to editing. Uh, they overheard on the radio that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Uh, and this is what Romero says anyway. And there, he says that there was part of him, like, again, like, like he was horrified at first hearing the news. But then in the back of the mind, he's like, this is going to do really well for my movie now, mm -hmm. you know, like, because it, it really echoes the, the ending of, of the film in terms of uh, that uh, horrifying, you know, moment where the where the posse comes and shoots uh, Dwayne Jones's character. Um in a, in a very unexpected, uh, you know, assassination, essentially. Uh, which, again, I, I think it, it was written as a kind of bleak, uh, you know, exclamation point at the end of the film, regardless of the connotations. Again, like, mm. like before the race was even in a mixture there, like that was an intentional, uh, you know, uh, nihilism uh ending point for the story uh before you, the casting even took a part there but obviously it takes on a, a whole new dimension of uh context once once you change up the casting a little bit there and it's kind of incredible how that little tweak just just changes the film so much more uh and again like it, the, the film would be phenomenal even without all that but it becomes even more uh incredible and important and you know um revolutionary uh, with the casting and presentation of Dwayne Jones's character, because another important aspect of it, obviously, beyond just those, uh, you know, uh, statements that you get in the the final like minute of the film, it's really like at the very, very end, mm. uh, is just the presentation of jo Jones's character as you know very much like anyone else. His race does not play a role in his characterization 
at all until the, that final minute. And right. as opposed to, you know, just like a year prior, you know, you're getting the, the kind of watered down, you know, Sidney Poitier examples of a black man in, as, as a leading character in, you know, American cinema at the time. Uh, it's, it's very much cleaned up, you know, it's, it's very, uh, and, and it's all very race important in the heat of the night and guess who's coming to dinner are films entirely about race and entirely about the, the racism that's, you know, perpetuated against, you know, uh, uh, black people in American culture. And I think, and, I think uh, maybe in, in almost a condescending way. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe one of the more striking things you could do is just to put them in there and then not say anything about it and then just do the ending. Uh, I mean, that that could almost be more striking at that time in 1968 than just doing like the race movie itself. Oh, ab absolutely. Again, and and seeing those films today, again, the Sidney Poitier films, they do feel so catered to an, an entrenched audience as they're kind of like and, and kind of slowly trying to nurse them out of, you know, a, a, a prejudiced mindset. Whereas Night of the Living Dead just in, entirely refuses to, uh, you know, engage with that kind of uh, uh, bigoted mindset of, you know, American audiences at that time. and just says, this is a character. This is a, a character and his race is entirely unimportant, you know. Which is the majority a, another of the reason why it's lasted so long and it, and it plays so well now. Uh... Yeah, and, and <laughs> the, the fact that the ending still resonates so you know, profoundly as it does today is its own kind of, uh, you know, reflection on how little we've progressed. But yeah. the, the the lack of, you know, uh, you know, importance placed on him, you know, prior to that in mm -hmm. terms of, uh, you know, racial identity is uh, it helps make the film so eternal and so, you know, uh, everly, you know, uh, prominent. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the Poitiers films uh, seem very archaic. Um, very, very much lodged in their times and, you know, perhaps important cultural touchstones from a historic sense, but, uh, you know, less, you know, reflective of how uh, we conduct ourselves as a society today. I'm glad we're getting to this now. It feels like one of the horror movies we have to get to just as a prerequisite to doing a podcast that does a month of horror movies. It's it's one of my absolute favorites, and watching it more and more only kind of solidifies that notion. Uh, you know, I, I really fell in love with it first when I decided to do that deep dive into it and kind of really dissecting all its elements back in 2018. But the 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 brilliance of it only seems to shine more and more as it goes along. Again, it's just it's a very efficiently structured film. It's uh, you know, uh, and the characters, all of the characters, feel very humanistic again I, some complaints don't seem to make sense to me like like one complaint i see sometimes and well and that was really prevalent for a long time you know uh during the film's lifespan was uh the the characterization of barbara in the film mm -hmm. and how she's very she she's very uh uninvolved uh after she initially escapes from from the uh cemetery and I I think her characterization is actually quite vital to the film because her state yeah. of shock and her, her general catatonic you know presentation is uh, I think a very realistic portrait of how someone might react in that situation. And you need a, in a uh, I think you need a spectrum of reaction from your characters in this film here. Not everyone can be you know as um, you know uh, forward you know moving and and uh, you know strong headed as as Dwayne Jones's character in the film. Uh, I think, again, you know, so having someone who is really in, in a state of disbelief and, and unable to operate uh, is is vital. 
especially in the smaller moments he gives her throughout, like the, just these moments where she's trying to kind of connect with reality again, where yeah. she's like messing with the music box or like where she finally is able to muster enough strength to bring like these, these tiny bundles of, of wood to him that really aren't going to protect anything, but she's trying to, to help and she's trying to overcome this paralyzing fear that she's experiencing. And again, it's, it's another element that makes it feel more real and less like a movie, you know, and it's the same thing with the, the characters, like the, the, the Mr. Cooper character I really like because he's antagonistic and he's, you know, uh, brutish and he's, you know, arrogant, but that's very realistic. That's how someone might act in this situation. I don't think he's unreasonable under the, the duress of this situation because he is looking out for his family in the way he sees fit. You know, and he's being argumentative because uh, he, he that's just, you know, how he may not be reasonable to compromise because, again, he's coming up with this person who is being equally as, you know, uh, un, <laughs> uncooperative as he is. And they can't seem to reach a consensus, which, again, is, I think, another element that uh, underlines, you know, some important commentary of the film, that the lack of ability for us as, as a, you know, people, as a culture to, like, compromise and communicate and come together on, yeah. under even the most unifying situations of, of duress. I mean, it is shocking just to look at uh, what could be the most unifying situation of lifetimes right now and, and how divisive those situations could really be. I mean, it, you look at things like a horror movie and folks are always like, Oh yeah, the characters are making dumb decisions there. And I'm like, well, I make a, I make completely irrational decisions myself all the time. Like, a, um, yeah, I mean, uh, we all do. I mean, being human is to be irrational. And sometimes right. we make the biggest irrational decisions in moments of the greatest arrest. So I think this film captures a lot of that feeling. Yeah, uh, particularly I find that to be the case with the scene where there's the couple who are trying to go out and get to the truck. They're trying to escape because they've heard on the news that there's these, you know, set up like, you know, protective stations throughout the, the county or wherever. And uh, they're, they're trying to get away from this, you know, horde that that's gathered outside their home. Yeah. And uh, inevitably it just goes horribly wrong and the car gets set on fire and explodes. And uh, again, in, like in a hindsight situation, it's like, yeah, that was a very awful idea. And you've got two people killed in the process there and it's horribly tragic. But, you know, at the same time, not knowing that going in, like, isn't the wise decision to try and get out of there and get to somewhere safe. That still seems to be the right call, despite yeah, the, does. the scenario. And, and it's the same thing with the argument of, you know, whether to stay up, you know, inside the house versus uh, down in the, the, the basement where you've got more protection, but no way out as well. You know, I think they're obviously both sound arguments, even though the film presents one as the uh, right one to align with, with, you know, Dwayne Jones's character uh, with Ben there. But at the same time, ultimately, they all die up uh, in, you know, in the house, whereas uh, Ben finds sanctuary in the basement, you know, until people come. He, he survives through the night because of, you know, he went with Mr. Cooper's plan. So so it shows you again that there's no right answer, I think, in these kind of situations. And, you know, these these kind of uh, decisions on the fly uh, are entirely prone to, you know, mishaps and, you know, uh, uncertainties, even though, you know, we, we seem to align with the, the most correct one in a, in a given situation. It doesn't always pan out for, for any number of reasons. Um, but yeah, again, it, I, I also just love the threat of the the, the zombies here as well. It's so well orchestrated and so well conceived 
from this initial entry, you've got the full-fledged ideas of them and the the horror of them. And even in such a small size, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the important things about Night Living Dead that, that might get overlooked is that there's about 20 zombies, I think, in the film yeah. overall. So <laughs> which, many of these movies which seem like the very small hundreds, compared right? to so many later. <laughs> yeah. There's like a literal mountain of ma- zombies in one. <laughs> <laughs> as far as like the zombie canon goes, I think like the broad overarching themes of Romero connect a lot better than uh, sort of the reflections of his work later on. When you look at like uh, the evolution of zombies and where they go in popular culture, I think like uh, uh, some other cultures do interesting things. Like Like they make really fucking fast zombies. I think that's fun. I like when zombies change their pace and and their rhythms. Um, how about you? Where where are you at? What do you prefer out of a zombie? I I definitely prefer Romero brand of zombies, but I also agree that if you're going to make a zombie film, you should do something different because yeah. Romero's films have that down on lock. One of the important things, though, that's lost when other people do zombie movies that Romero films consistently do up until like uh land of the dead i would say is um that they the zombies serve as a vessel for social commentary uh particularly of this idea of of the masses and as a reflection of us as a society and as a people um and you see that here in in night of living dead you see it especially in dawn of the dead uh you know where where they serve again as a kind of more commercial critique uh, uh and such and it is because they're we're able to project these ideas onto these kind of like you know uh l- lacking of it. again d- d- despite what i said about them all having these individual personalities they also operate as as a mass hmm. and so that's an important uh, aspect of them that allows them to be a tool of of, of social commentary which i think excels most uh, overtly through the zombies in dawn but is best implemented in, in night living dead here because it's so multifunctional again like i said they are as much victims in in this scenario as the people born in inside the house if not more uh by some and, and another important element that i think you know needs to be addressed here is that we're at no point in the film are we entirely sure what causes this yeah. there's some hints there's some hints about like a, a a meteor or something i think in in the newscast but it's never confirmed it's never certain and it's it's only kind of slightly hinted at the 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 very um you know uh, uh un- <laughs> crap i'm running out of words <laughs> the very the very unexpected uh beginning of this outbreak here and again the the fact that it feels so small and it feels very localized is the, mm. the other important thing it does not feel like a worldwide phenomenon no, yet e- even though it very well could be uh i think that's why it excels so well as a progenitor of the the, the zombie crisis here is that it's very localized to the uh you know m- middle pennsylvania area uh, uh here you know you, you especially you see all the the city names popping up on the television screen of where people can go again it's all you know done through local media it's not on a national level yet as far as we can tell right which i think helps indicate that it is really the start of something particularly when you then go into something like dawn of the dead and then day of the dead afterwards where you get a sense of progress of this spreading you know they do it does feel like an upping of things as it goes along a progression of the the outbreak here uh and and i think night is just the the perfect beginning to all of that 
Absolutely. Uh, I'm on board with all that. Um, and it feels like something that should spread. Um, it feels like these ideas, like the infection, should spread out and kind of infect every part of the genre, and they do. Uh, that's fine. Um, I'm okay with the... I'm more okay with, like, the masses zombie culture that I think many people are. I know people got overwhelmed with it for a long time. There, there was so much. There's, it was definitely, like, like late 2000s, like, zombie craze was, like, kind of unendurable for a bit. It was uh, for a while. Yeah. It, everywhere, every stuff. And and I'm I'm guilty. <laughs> I'm guilty of it, too. We're guilty in this household, but... <laughs> We've left it behind a little bit, and uh, I think we could use uh, a resurgence. So, the new idea. Uh, uh, there was a very good turn in things with the like the era of Twenty Eight Days Later, yeah, and such, where you had the the more viral oriented outbreak, and that was around the I believe that was around the swine flu time, mm-hmm. uh, uh, or uh, another kind of you know like like medical uh, you know pandemic. Uh, not quite as bad as this, but obviously that that you know resonated throughout the world, and so that's where things took that more you know uh, viral oriented one, where it was more uh, airborne and such, and you know so that versus your typical uh, like like kind of like like nuclear chemical infection or <laughs> asteroid yeah. thing, some some kind of radiation zombie, which was more the the deal in you know in the sixties for a little bit. Hey, you look at awkward. like the you look at like the SARS or the H one N one, then you know the COVID. I could see why we're going to be interested the next three years, and and how someone could do something new again. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see a, a, a different angle, but I have no idea what that angle would be either. So uh, I mean, there there have been, of course, the alternative might be not to do it. Right, um, the alternative yeah. might be that we're done and we we've seen enough, and and we have these old texts to correlate and. Uh, we're maybe too uncomfortable and lost too many people to enjoy such a thing right now. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I can, I can see like, what, what if you did again, you kind of go back to that, uh, you know, Romero style and it becomes more about a, a an infection via media. I can see like yeah. a media twist on it, but that seems also like Precarious. too on the nose. Yeah. Like, like you're really hitting your audience over the head with a hammer there. I was like, Oh yes, there, here's this, Fox News parallel that's infecting you know all of all of the oh. country with with a zombie brainwave. <laughs> Isn't that the hard thing? Is reality's hitting us over the head with a hammer constantly? So so how do you reflect it without being idiotic? It's very hard. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, and it's it's a hard thing to tackle. But uh, you know, obviously there's there's plenty of examples. You know, again through yeah. Romero's work where it's been done uh, with uh, with great tact. You know, even when it's very overt, like in the case of Dawn of the Dead, uh, I, I would not call that commentary exactly subtle, but it's extremely <laughs> effective. All you have to do, it turns out, just don't copyright your new movies and <laughs> maybe it'll all work out. Mm-hmm. So, yep, th- this is the beginning. This is the start of, of Zombies. And it, I, I I really can't think of another thing that has been so so widespread as it, again, very appropriately so. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, superheroes wanna... now have become the new zombies in some way. Sure, but they're yeah. they're more of a a face thing. Again, like I said, I I literally I cannot think of another creation to be born from from cinema that is so yeah. 
widely affected popular culture is this you know th again uh, zombies are on a level of mythical creature of, of, of made-up ideas as vampires and dragons and you know probably even more than werewolves like i'm pretty mm -hmm. sure zombies have passed werewolves in terms of you know how prolific they are and it's, again werewolves it's just uh, so easy to frame right like it's easy to make people into zombies easier than these other things possibly right right and that's why it's been so effective but consider that you know versus a you know hundreds year old you know legend of of like werewolves and such versus yeah. zombies which are again in this iteration and this concept and as we understand them only 50 years old that's insane mm. i how how does something become as as widespread as that in such a short amount of time yeah we love them zombies thanks romero <laughs> yeah um so next week uh, i heard you drop a hint earlier for what's going to be going on because yeah. like we said i'm, I'm not going to be here maybe for two weeks who knows <laughs> um i we interviewed uh the marvelous matt farley um the earl of christmas the author of twenty three thousand songs and the star of a uh, uh quite a few of our favorite cult films on the uh, site community so uh we'll, we'll have that and we talk about malignant and friday 13th part two with uh vaughn i believe you said. oh no no, no uh, steven's in that one then uh then oh, vaughn will okay. be on the next week yeah you're, you're having steven on for friday the 13th yeah okay <laughs> i would have i would have thought he wanted a good movie to talk about but no, you no, know no. uh all right <laughs> we'll see how that goes in the meantime uh thanks everyone for tuning in this week make sure as always to check out our website thetwingeeks.com for our latest reviews retrospectives and features you can follow us on twitter as well at the twin geeks and individually at calvin kempf and at david a punch don't forget to check out our sister video game show the daydream cast with pablos and broken as well as our uh ranking the monsters with calvin and steven both are available on apple Podcasts, spotify and anywhere else podcasts are played Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Zombie, 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 zombies are the living dead. Zombie, 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 you want to kill a zombie, just put a bullet through its head, and then it will be dead again for good zombie 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 zombies love to eat your brains zombie 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 you're never gonna be the same if a zombie kills you you'll become a zombie too if a zombie kills you You'll become a zombie too. During an outbreak, you've got to do what it takes. Don't worry so much about the loss. If somebody dies and you can't revive him after a few tries, just burn that body or cut it up with some sauce. You've got to prevent that zombie disease. Don't worry about answering to the authorities. They've got enough on their hands as it is. It's basically a no-holds-barred situation when a zombie attack begins. Expect some looting.